when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. King Charles III began his reign as monarch of the United Kingdom with an address to the House of Parliament where he pledged to follow in his mother's apolitical footsteps. While very young, her late majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be delving into a time of epic transformation for Britain, both in its national and political leadership. First off, we'll be looking at the state occasions following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the mourning, the crowds, and what it says about Britain as a nation. Peter Foster, our public policy editor, will dissect along with our special guest, Hannah White, from the Institute for Government Think Tank. And later, we'll be looking at just what the new monarch means for the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. The Queen's death, just 48 hours into her leadership, upended all of her early plans in Downing Street and has thrust her straight onto the international stage. Political editor George Parker will analyse with chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining the pod. The Queen's death at the age of 96 has shook the UK to its core. For the vast majority of the country, she was the only monarch they had ever known. The Buckingham Palace Bulletin last Thursday lunchtime signalled that her time had almost come, but her passing, announced late that evening, came with a huge shock to everyone. But it was also a moment of change, with King Charles instantly being thrust onto the throne. In his first speech to the nation, the new monarch explained the complicated emotional moment for him, bidding farewell to his mother, but also having to immediately step into her shoes. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother for her love, affection, guidance, understanding and example. Well, Hannah Weiss, wonderful to welcome you back to the podcast. Before we get stuck into all the things that we've been through, it's sort of mind-boggling to consider the scale of change. The last time I was sitting recording this podcast, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and Queen Elizabeth II was the monarch. Now it's Liz Truss and King Charles III. And obviously this event has been anticipated for decades and years in this country, but still, it feels like it's kind of hit the nation like it's a ton of bricks. 
It does. It's surprisingly shocking, I would say, and and that has been sort of playing out, I think, in in the reaction. Although, as you say, in theory, we've all known this has been coming, and the the Queen, you know, very happily got to celebrate her jubilee this year, and we had a little bit of warning. The idea that we would suddenly end up with a new Prime Minister and a new monarch in the same week, uh, I don't think had crossed most people's minds. And it was remarkable that her last act as monarch was uh, installing the new Prime Minister, that Boris Johnson and went up to Balmoral that Tuesday to essentially hand in his notice, then was followed by Liz Truss. And the final picture of the Queen was with the new Prime Minister, which I think obviously speaks to her sense of duty that obviously I think with retrospect we can say she probably was not too well when that actually happened, yet again to the very end fulfilling her constitutional role. That's right. I mean, the sense of duty to the last. And I mean, I think it was very fortunate for us all that she did last as long as she did and, and that transition happened smoothly. Uh, of course, some of the appointments to the new government uh, weren't then made for a while because those would have required her sign-off. But yes, it was a tremendous last act, I think, to appoint her 15th Prime Minister. Well, Peter Foster, great to have you back as always. You and I have essentially dropped our day jobs and become temporary royal correspondents for the past week. The FT not generally going in for that sort of thing. When you look back at what just happened, we've had so many occasions from obviously the Queen's lying state in Edinburgh to lying state in Westminster to thousands and thousands of people in Scotland and London paying tribute there. And I can't remember any other event of my lifetime, I don't know if you can, that has captured the whole attention of the nation as the events the last week. No, indeed. Actually, I was at both the uh, ceremony on the Royal Mile where the Queen's coffin was taken up to St. Charles Cathedral and on the Mile for the much larger moment when the uh, coffin left Buckingham Palace and made its way to Westminster Hall. They're quite different events, actually. The situation in Scotland, it felt much more subdued, not anti-monarchist in any way, although there were one or two incidents. But I think it was the same for the Jubilee. It's a very different feeling in Scotland you know, the Queen is very respected. She obviously had a deep relationship with Scotland. She loved Balmoral. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP, very generous in her tribute to the Queen. But when you then get down to London, where I was a couple of days later on the Mall, you really felt the sort of size of the event and the extent to which there's no denying that the passing of the Queen touched people, I think, in quite an unexpected way. And, and if you look at the polling in terms of attitudes to King Charles... He's twice as popular now. Twice as many people think he will make a good king, about two-thirds of the population, than before he became king, which was about a third. So something really sort of, I can't, you know, Diana was the last event I covered that was of this magnitude when she died. And and, uh, I was a young journalist talking to people outside Kensington Palace. I think it does match that. It's that thing, Peter, of her being a constant in most people's lives, as I said. You know, she was on the throne for 70 years, so the majority of the country have never known any other monarch, have never lived under a king, which obviously we certainly all will be for the rest of our lives, which speaks to the seismic element of this moment. And I think when you've looked at the crowds across the whole of the country, you see that, that obviously this is somebody very few people in the country have actually met, but everybody felt they had a relationship with. Yes, indeed. And actually, you know, he has had this honeymoon period. Social media has picked up on, you know, him fighting with exploding ink pens and blotters are in the right place and sort of, get out, you know. And actually, when you talk to people, it's a self-selecting sample, but certainly people who show up to these events, yes, you know, liberal Twitter might be cross about the way he's behaved. And you certainly never saw the Queen behave in that way. But actually, people are really willing 
to defend King Charles, to give him a chance to let him move on from being the sometimes petulant prince to being the king. You know, his speech to the nation was very well judged, I thought, a mixture of the kind of emotion that's now required with a recognition that he needed to move on from his previous roles and was going to let William, with a certain amount of license, now the new Prince of Wales, take on those roles. And thus far, it's been, I think, very carefully judged. You know, I think after the Princess Diana episode, the royal family really has got good at this. Uh, And, you know, he knows he's got a tough act to follow. He has to build his own relationship. He has to follow in those enormous footsteps of the Queen. And so far, he's making a pretty good fist of it, I'd say. And I thought, Hannah, that was actually the most significant thing the new king has said when he did that speech and essentially has said throughout all of his events that he appreciates going from the heir to the throne to the monarch does require a very different approach because many people have been critical of Charles over the years saying this is going to tarnish the standing of the monarchy and of the institutions if he becomes king and continues to be an activist in the way that he has in various causes that have massed him, be it, you know, the environment, the built environment, planning, climate change, all that sort of thing. But there was a very clear acknowledgement from the off that he is going to change. We'll see how that pans out in practice, though. Yeah, I mean, I think he's becoming monarch in a very different context to the context in which his his mother became queen. Not just that the UK is a completely different place, but having had a 70-year monarchy that he is now stepping into the shoes of is both very sort of good for him in one way. There is a very clear model to follow. And as you say, he's signalled uh, in his speeches that he's made so far that he he understands what that model is and the, I think the success of it and that he intends to follow it. But in some ways, it's a disadvantage in the sense that over 70 years, as you say, most people have no experience of any other monarch in the UK. We all almost implicitly have the sense that there is only one way to be the king, be the queen of the UK. And that is not necessarily true. There are some points of flex There are different ways of doing it. He will want to put his own stamp on it. But to do that, he will have to persuade the rest of us that that actually that that is legitimate. And that is harder when you're following uh, a monarchy that's that's been in place for 70 years. Now, if we look at the first couple of acts the new king has done, so obviously he had a a private audience with Liz Truss in the hours, literally, since he took over from his mother. He also had a meeting with the new cabinet and has done a tour of the United Kingdom. And this was all planned out for years in advance as part of Operation London Bridge, the long-term planning for the Queen's mourning and funeral. Putting the union front and centre, Hannah, does feel like it's a very clear statement because, as we know, the United Kingdom has fractured its bonds since 2016 and the referendum when the different four nations have been pulling in slightly different ways. And it was very clear that by sending the king out early on, it was to send a clear signal that the United Kingdom is of great importance to him. Yes, I don't think that would have ever been any other way. I think feels very much the same as his mother did, that uh, he is the king of all parts of the United Kingdom and that he wanted to signal that. The fact the Queen actually ended up dying in Scotland added a little bit of complexity to Operation uh, London Bridge and meant that uh, some of Operation Unicorn had to be brought into play as well, which was the provision that was there for if she did die at Balmoral or in Scotland. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. That will continue to be a key theme of the monarchy, I think. It's a bit of a blessing. You know, it's hard to think the Queen won little part of the Queen wasn't quite pleased to be dying in Scotland. Wonderful opportunity to have the body in St. Giles Cathedral. Another great, a great moment for the union there and for unionists in Scotland. 
Yes, and you obviously up in Scotland, Peter, and we saw that um, obviously the Queen died at Balmoral and then her, the first part of her procession began from there to Edinburgh and there were crowds, there was mourning. What was the mood like when you were there? It's important to remember, Sebastian, that the SNP is very clear that a vote for independence is not a vote for republicanism. There are Republicans in the SNP, but Nicola Sturgeon, very heartfelt tribute to the Queen of Scots, as she called her. And actually, you know, I spoke to a number of people who said that I'd vote for independence, but that doesn't mean I'd vote for a republic. Now, if Scotland did vote for independence, I don't know how long, honestly, the union of the crowns would last. But certainly at this juncture, you know, the SNP is very clear because it knows that people on the middle ground wouldn't like a vote for independence axiomatically to mean the end of the monarchy. So actually, well, there wasn't a very strict division there. There were plenty of people there who'd gone up to pay their respects to a woman who'd served the country for 70 years. And whatever your feelings about independent Scotland, about the monarchy, you have to recognise there was a woman who literally gave her life to the service of the of her people. And people put their current political differences aside and they recognise that. Now, one of the trips that the New King made was not just to Scotland, but also to us, but also to Northern Ireland. And I found that his words here were particularly notable. In the years since she began her long life of public service, my mother saw Northern Ireland pass through momentous uh, and historic changes. Through all those years, she never ceased to pray for the best of times for this place and its people, whose stories she knew, whose sorrows our family had felt, and for whom she had a great affection and regard. Well, Peter, let's pull this back to London, where you've been out and about with the crowds. And of course, we have to mention the epic queue, which has been termed the Elizabeth Line on social media, which was the line to see the Queen lying in state that started in Westminster and has wormed its way all the way along the South Bank of London, I think stretching over four miles and expected to get even longer over the weekend. What were people saying to you? Why did they come? What Was, was there a stereotype of people? Was there a particular compulsion? Or was it just a big mix of everything and everyone. I think, Sebastian, it, it is this thing that she's been such a constant. She's been such a kind of pole star for the country. And whether you're a monarchist or whether you're a Republican, she's been there. And her passing, you know, we talked to a lot of people who said, oh, you know, my father died or my mother, you know, it's a sense of this passing of the wartime generation was quite a kind of common theme. And then also, people just wanted to be there. They'd come from Warrington and they'd come from the West Midlands and they'd come from Somerset. I mean, I spoke to endless people who just felt impelled, almost on an impulse, to come, even though they might stand, you know, in the queue for, shuffling in the queue for 10, 12 hours. They really wanted to be there. You know, I think it's going to be 350,000. That's nearly twice the number that passed the Queen Mother's Coffin in 2002. Uh, and it is quite a sight. I think other than perhaps the Kumela. Uh, in uh, in India or, or the pilgrimage to Mecca, I can't think of some anything that kind of globally that creates quite the queue that the lying in state of, of Queen Elizabeth II has. 
Well, I was very fortunate to have half an hour observing the lying in state from the reporter's box they've set up for political journalists. And we were not obviously part of the procession and were not interacting. But it was an incredibly moving sight to see this and to see the wide mix of people who had turned up. There was, from my perspective, no particular type of person. There was old, young, middle-aged, people of all backgrounds and ethnicities. There was a lot of very upset people. And the thing that I found, Hannah, was the silence was what... You don't quite capture on television that Westminster Hall, the oldest part of Parliament, was carpeted, been completely cleaned up in a way that I've never really seen before. And standing at the back of the hall watching this site, it was breathtaking to just watch all these people and all of them as going back to my earlier point of interacting with somebody who they felt they had a relationship with, but very few would have personally known. Yes, and I think it's a really important uh, event for the monarchy to re-establish that link, if you like, and an individual, personal link, even in death, between the Queen and uh, so many of her subjects. You know, part of the important thing for the monarchy is to be visible in the life of the country. And I think that you know this is therefore such a crucial moment. It's a terribly difficult moment for the new king to be mourning his dear mother while also being set on this grueling set of ceremonial events and things he is required to do at the same time. And I think most of us can't imagine having to do those two things at the same time. But this is what he's been preparing for his his entire life. And it is a crucial moment um, in the future of the monarchy in the country. It is interesting, Sebastian, that that relationship you speak of has been built between the Queen and her people when she was a woman who actually gave very little away. She said very little other than commonplaces. And it will be interesting to see in the age of social media, whether Charles can replicate that when actually he's given quite a lot away. You know, one of his problems might be actually that that ability of people to project their own thoughts onto what the Queen did or didn't think is actually almost going to be harder for him because he hasn't maintained that distance that the Queen had. And it'll be interesting to see once this sort of honeymoon period is over, whether he can build that kind of almost blind loyalty to the institution in the way that his mother did. And I think a lot of that is the fact she didn't say a lot. A lot of people could project ideals and ideals onto her. And that was the triumph of what she did, that she was this constant throughout people's lives. The last point I just wanted to mention to you, Peter, of course, is that it is quite amazing how well the planning for her funeral and the mourning period has gone. That, you know, maybe it's not a surprise that the London Bridge operation is being prepared for many years and decades, but everything has really gone very smoothly. And it, it does show that when push comes to shove, the British state can function very well under huge, enormous strain. And when you and I report about all the ups and downs of Whitehall and, and the government day to day, it is quite a different outcome from what we normally witness. Yeah, indeed. If only the government functioned as smoothly as the as as the pageantry, uh, uh, Sebastian. You know, it's interesting that um, I was reading in in a piece that uh, that George Parker, our esteemed colleague, uh, wrote earlier this week that actually Simon Case, the cabinet secretary who was absolutely slated for the boot uh, when Truss came in, seems to have won. You know, because he formerly worked for Prince William, now the Prince of Wales. Simon Case has rather, you know, earned his spurs by being such a good link man between, as you say, this Rolls-Royce operation, you know, which rather contrasts, frankly, between the, you know, the last three years of, frankly, chaotic government that we've had, you know, under Boris Johnson. And and let's see whether this trusses government, when this passes, can can show some of the, uh, um, the organisational skills that we've seen from the palace. Peter and Hannah, thank you very much. Almost 
immediately after she became Prime Minister, Liz Truss was thrown into constitutional upheaval. Just 48 hours before her death, she had been announced as the Queen's 15th and final Prime Minister after winning this summer's Tory leadership contest with 57% of the vote among party activists. Truss's initial plans for her leadership were thrown into chaos and she was thrust onto the national and international stage to announce the news of the Queen's passing. Addressing the House of Commons, Truss sought to put the change of monarch into a historical context. On the death of her father, King George VI, Winston Churchill said the news had stilled the clatter and traffic of 20th century life in many lands. Now, 70 years later, in the tumult of the 21st century, life has paused again. Her late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. She was the rock on which modern Britain was built. George Parker, great to have you back on the podcast. So this is not how Liz Truss intended to begin her time as Prime Minister. Nobody could have really foreseen this would have happened. And last week was a truly remarkable week within Westminster. How do you think the new PM has coped with this huge upheaval? Well, as you say, it's just absolutely unprecedented. I was in the chamber of the House of Commons watching Liz Truss deliver the big energy statement on the Thursday morning. And you saw Nadim Zahawi, the Chancellor of the Duchess of Lancaster, coming into the chamber, handing her a note, and the, you could tell the mood changing in the House of Commons. And she must have known at that point that the whole nature of the beginning of her premiership was going to change. All Prime Ministers have a 100-day plan of action. Of course, that was blown completely out of the water by what happened. And I think, look, Liz Truss, I think she's done everything that could be expected of a new Prime Minister. I think she, her initial statement on the Queen's death was a bit... Lackluster, I think it's probably the fairest way to describe it. She was much better in the House of Commons when there was that those two days of MPs giving tributes. So, of course, her own contribution was eclipsed by some of the incredible orations by other people, including Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who made a fantastic speech. And indeed, by some of the world leaders paying tribute to the Queen. I thought Emmanuel Macron actually gave the most moving tribute to the Queen, where he said, to you, she was your Queen, and to us, she was just the Queen. I thought that was a really moving way of putting it. But I think this trust has done everything you could have expected of a, a new leader, albeit it's completely transformed the way that she intended her premiership to start. Well, let's just hear some of those tributes that came in the House of Commons before we come back to Liz Truss. As you mentioned, George, Boris Johnson, who was Prime Minister literally just over a week ago, an amazing amount of change, stood up from the backbenches, his first address as a backbench Tory MP, and had this to say. She had the patience and the sense of history to see that troubles come and go and that disasters are seldom as bad as they seem. And it was that indomitability, that humour, that work ethic and that sense of history which together made her Elizabeth the Great. Well, Robert, as Jules said, there were those two big interventions from Liz Truss and when she first became Prime Minister last Tuesday, one of the first things that would have been raised with her would have been the Queen's health, because obviously we know she's had mobility issues for some time before the end of her life came on Thursday. And I thought that initial speech outside 10 Downing Street, where she announced the news to the nation that evening, was quite halting, I think, in its delivery and a bit lacking in substance. But then she did manage to pull it back around, and we've discussed many times on the pod that Liz Truss is not the most natural of orator, but I think she 
has shown over this last week when she needs to deliver, she can do it, not in the way of, say, Boris Johnson or others, but can actually sort of meet what is required of her. As George says, she was fine. She didn't do anything wrong. Nothing you would want to have a go about. This just isn't the kind of thing that plays to her strong suits. The question I think you have to... It's just how much it matters that prime ministers become essentially chief emoters for the nation. And we've had a run of prime ministers who've been good at it. And she's not going to be one of those people. Furthermore, she hasn't had the time for the country to really get familiar with her. So you expect Liz Truss to come in and say something because she's the prime minister. So she had those two things weighing against her. I don't think you could say she did anything wrong at all. She's done nothing wrong. But I just don't think it plays to any of her strong suits. And I think she'll be very glad when politics returns to something closer to normality. One person who was quite good at emoting in the House of Commons was Keir Starmer, who I think delivered one of his best addresses as opposition leader. This is what he had to say. All our thoughts are with her beloved family, our royal family, at this moment of profound grief. This is a deep and private loss for them. Yet it's one we all share, because Queen Elizabeth created a special personal relationship with us all. That relationship was built on the attributes that defined her reign, her total commitment to service and duty, her deep devotion to the country, the Commonwealth, and the people she loved. In return for that, we loved her. And just on a sort of party political point here, George, Kistarmer and his team have been pretty strict in terms of the messaging they've put forward in terms of the change of monarch and the, the Labour Party's social media has been draped in pictures of the king and of the of the former queen. And there was a diktat that came out from Kistarmer's office to all Labour MPs saying, don't tweet, don't go on national radio. And some people on the left of the party have criticised this control. But again, it has been a moment for Keir Starmer to try and symbolise the image of the Labour Party he wants to put forward to the country. You could see in that moment where Keir Starmer was speaking in the chamber about the death of the Queen, someone who the country, I think, could imagine being Prime Minister, actually. That's an important thing for a leader of the opposition. I think there'll be a general reappraisal of Keir Starmer over the next 18 months if the Labour Party maintains its opinion poll leads, because opinion poll leads bestow a kind of credibility on, on a leader which wasn't probably there for Keir Starmer before. So people looking at him in a slightly different way. He's never going to be, as Robert put it, the emotor-in-chief that Tony Blair was, for example, after Princess Diana's death. But the Labour Party have behaved in an incredibly restrained way during this period because there has been some politics going on throughout the last week, and we may come on to that later, even on the issue of the bankers' bonus tax, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, it was impossible to get anyone from the Labour Party to criticise the government over it. So this is an important part of Labour's positioning. You know, forget Jeremy Corbyn. This is a party which believes in the royal family, believes in the royal family's constitutional position, and it believes very strongly in the Queen. And it's not a shame to say it as well, which is a big change. Now, Robert, let's go back to Liz Truss. So as you said, she became Prime Minister on the Tuesday, and on Thursday, her government began with the energy support package, which obviously we've talked and written and reported an awful lot about, which was completely forgotten and completely blown out of the water. And that really speaks to this wider thing within Liz Truss's team. Of course, no one is saying this. They're focused on the period of national mourning, so there's no real government work going on at the moment. But their plan for their first 
almost weeks in office has been completely upended. What does that mean for her? I think one can overdo this and overstate the problems. But I think what you can say with confidence is that she lost the important positive political theatre of her first major policy announcement, and a huge one too, with the energy package. And so she lost that day one. Liz Truss, new prime minister, does something huge. And the nature of politics is that the country doesn't really know Liz Truss. They're just about to start paying attention when the Queen's death is announced and they stop paying attention. So the moment that she had planned to introduce herself essentially to the public was lost. Now, the energy package is so important and the issue so large that there will probably be other opportunities for her to regain the initiative on that. We've got this mini fiscal event. Well, it was called a fiscal event, but not a budget. There's a funny initials for it, FEEB or something. So that on Friday, I think, will become the chance to relaunch that package as well as all the other tax measures. But but that's quasi Quarteng's day rather than hers. So I don't think in the long term it makes too much difference, but that As you were saying, that first 100 days, momentum, here I am, new prime minister, look at me before you get on with your life and stop paying attention to politics again. That's been diminished a bit. It probably isn't enormous, but I wouldn't be surprised if when we start seeing opinion polls a month from now, if the bounce that you would expect her to have had is maybe not quite as big as we would have assumed initially, because she just hasn't had the chance to have the impact she'd wanted. The flip side of that, of course, the public's first awareness of her possibly as prime minister or seeing her in that dressed in black and being part of the state ceremonial mourning for the Queen in sort of a statesman-like role. So I suppose that's the other side of it. But I agree with Robert. Generally, she's lost lost. And there's one other point, which I think which just struck me during the, the ceremony with the Accession Council. And you had all the images of her standing next to Theresa May and Boris Johnson and, and David Cameron. And you thought, you're trying to be a change candidate. And here you are, the row of the four Conservative Prime Ministers together. So it just also very, very slightly underpinned that. I don't think we should make too much of this, but I don't think it's helpful. The one thing I would add to that is we have seen some opinion polls this week and there's been an ever so slight increase in the Conservative vote by up about three points. But that's actually undecided going back as opposed to taking votes away from Labour. And given the fact there's essentially been no government for the past two months, that's not really a surprise. But on policy terms, George, we've got that fiscal event, which as we discussed in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is not a budget because there are no OBR forecasts of what it means to the economy. So we use emergency budget in FT quote marks there. But that's coming, as you reported, um, next Friday. What are we expecting in that? And what's it going to go beyond what was announced in terms of the energy support package? Well, next week, politics is going to come roaring back with a vengeance. So the Queen's State funeral is on Monday morning. On Monday evening, Liz Truss is flying off to America to the UN General Assembly. So plenty of high-level diplomacy in New York. She'll return on Thursday. And then on Friday, as you say, we'll have this mini budget by Quasi Quarteng. And this is going to be a huge moment for the new government. The big theme of it will be growth. We reported this week how Kwasi Kwarteng had had an all-staff Zoom call with Treasury staff where he said the whole department now has to be focused on growth. That's their entire focus. And by the way, we need fresh leadership in the Treasury, which is why he sacked Sir Tom Scholar, the Permanent Secretary, on his first day at work, something which has caused a great deal of resentment and concern in the Treasury, I should say. But yes, what can we expect? I mean, look, the bare bones of it are that he will do a lot of what Liz Trust promised he would do during the Tory leadership contest, including tax cuts, um, reversing a, or reducing national insurance, a policy which will benefit the better off, better off people more than the poor and reversing Rishi Sunak's planned increase in corporation tax, which was due to go up from 19% to 25% next April, a tax change which will benefit profitable large companies. So those are two things which, on the face of it, are not going to be played particularly well, for example, in the northern seats of the Red Wall. But Kwasi Kwarteng 
we'll put that in the context of the fact that the government is spending a vast amount of money, perhaps £150 billion, perhaps more, on this vast energy package. So it is putting its arm around the whole country at the same time as doing things which might be, on the face of it, not entirely popular to try to get growth going. On the Tom Scholar point, Robert, there's obviously he was on a famous shit list by Dominic Cummings, the former Downing Street... Last survivor, as I recall. He is the last survivor of the shit list. There were all these senior Whitehall figures who were named by Dominic Cummings as being obstructionist or not being onside enough. And one by one, they've nearly all been heaved out. And Tom Scholar is the last one. And... You know, you can take two views of this. One view is that Kwasi Kwarteng came in, his first job was to sack the most senior, experienced person in the Treasury at the height of an economic crisis. The other side of it is to say that when Gordon Brown became Chancellor in 1997, Terry Burns, who was then Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, was retired early after being seen as being too Thatcherite, too close to Ken Clark, the former Chancellor at that point. Where do you fall on this? Do you think it was a legitimate thing? Is this a politicization of the civil service? Is it a bad thing? Does it matter? As you say, there are two views and I'm going to take both of them. I think that, as you say, there is precedent for a Chancellor removing a permanent secretary at the Treasury who they think spoke to the old regime. The only problem is that the old regime was this regime. So, you know, one has to be a little... You know, both uh, Margaret Thatcher also did it. Both Thatcher and Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, had just won an election and defeated the existing government. The Conservatives were the government before, you know... They're defeating themselves, in a sense. In fact, he did outlast Dominic Cummings, which I suppose is something. I must admit, I'm not overheated about this. I think from time to time... The elected government is entitled to say, look, we need a slight change of direction. The Treasury as it was being led, or this particular department as it was being led, was not going where we wanted to go. We want someone else. And given the names that are being mooted as possible successors, there are already permanent secretaries elsewhere. So you're not exactly going to see Patrick Minford brought in to run the Treasury. It's more likely to be another experienced civil servant with significant Treasury experience. So you know, truthfully, I, I think one can get overly steamed up about this. That said, I think the, apart from the question about whether the civil service is being politicised, and there have been plenty of Mandarins who've said that, I think the other thing that should be of concern is the experience vacuum you've got in the Treasury ahead of a mini-budget and in the middle of an economic crisis where you've just lost your permanent secretary, you've lost your second permanent secretary, Charles Roxburgh, who's not been replaced, and you've got a set of ministers in the Treasury, the longest serving of whom is a junior minister, Richard Fuller, who was appointed on July the 8th by Boris Johnson. So in other words, you've got no, your two senior officials have gone and your whole ministerial team has changed as well. And the final bit of sort of policy meet we've had in this morning, Pierre George, was your excellent scoop about the banker's bonus cap. Now, this is something that's been a bet noir for Tories, going way back to George Osborne, in fact. And if we think back to those joyful days of the Brexit referendum, this was one thing that went backwards and forwards about how once we leave the EU, we can be more competitive globally by getting rid of the cap. And it, every time it comes around for discussion, leaders have generally said no, because the optics of it are pretty bad. I believe Boris Johnson looked at it at some point, but as you reported on the FT on Thursday, Kwasi Kwarteng does look as if he's going to remove the cap. And this sort of speaks to not just this sense of trying to go for growth, as, as you put it earlier, but also the ideological clarity you've got with this government that ever in the one week that we've had of the Trust government so far, and you saw this in her first PMQs and before the Queen's death, they are being unashamedly right-wing. There's none of the triangulation you saw under Boris Johnson of trying to be a bit more left on spending, a bit more right on social issues. It's kind of true blue conservatism. I agree with that. And um, I was speaking to David Gorka, former Conservative Treasury Minister, who said that in some way there's something rather 
admirable about the fact that they are sticking to their principles. And if you want to see what the principles are, go back and read the book that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng famously wrote exactly 10 years ago, Britannia Unchained, which is all about deregulating uh, and cutting taxes. Otherwise, Britain will be consigned to mediocrity, as they put it. And you're seeing them now putting that into practice. And I must admit, I thought that probably once Liz Truss was in number 10, the triangulation would start, but rather the opposite. And I think what's interesting about next week is you're going to see the nation coming together for the Queen's State funeral on Monday. And then immediately afterwards, politics getting back to business as usual, with Liz Truss, or quasi quasi her chance of producing a mini-budget, which will be portrayed by the Labour Party, at least, as favouring rich bankers or better-off people generally or profitable companies, letting energy companies off the hook on the windfall tax. You know, quite a sort of divisive budget, but one which... Liz Truss really believes in. She thinks it will get growth going. It will change the terms of the debate in the British economy, get the City of London roaring ahead. And hopefully, they, from their point of view, they'll see this is the way to start paying back the deficit. But it's, it's a big punt. Well, Robert, as I was saying that, your face was grimacing at me, so please tell me why I'm wrong about that. I just think we need to engage a little bit of scepticism about this government. You know, yes, it is true, this is part of the deregulatory clarity, but it has also just announced one of the largest state interventions in modern time, a furlough-sized bailout on the energy proposal, most of it going straight onto the taxpayer, a huge increase in the debt pile, and, you know, extending the amount of time this government can be in deficit, and while at the same time doing a number of really quite small things which are totemically significant. Now, I happen to agree with the bankers' bonus policy. I think it was a bad policy when the EU introduced it. I think the government was right to oppose it, and I think it's right to remove it because it doesn't do any good. On the other hand, it's also quite a small measure in terms of what it will achieve in terms of, you know, you had the, the head of Goldman Sachs, I think, saying to George, essentially, all it does is help with their fixed costs because they were having to pay this money as, as fixed salaries rather than bonuses. So I think it's a very small measure. There'll be some other measures of financial deregulation, and some of which will be spun as being a second big bang. But actually, when you start digging into the details, they're useful, they're good, they, they can be portrayed as a Brexit dividend, but I don't think we should fall too much for the spin. To me, if this is a big deregulatory government, if this government's for real about this, planning reform. They do planning reform, then you can say they're serious about unchaining. If Until I see that, I'm going to just take a step back from the hype. I agree with what Roberts just said there, but I think what you have to, you have to distinguish between what the, this government has to do and what it wants to do. They had to do the energy package. I don't think, they had no choice. I don't think that's a sign that this trust is addicted to a big form of government. But I totally agree with Robert that on the growth point, if you want to do growth, you reform the planning system, you lower barriers to trade with the European Union, you invest more in education. All these things are things the government could do, but has chosen not to do. And I agree with you both on planning reform, that it's the one thing you could do. And I think Liz Truss, in fact, on this very podcast, talked about how Japan was an inspiration of how we should be building everything, everywhere. We'll see if she ever does it. But George and Robert, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us or the usual channels you to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Young Sigsworth. And until next week, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
you've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.